whatever you're getting traction with, focus on that, ride that wave, climb to the top, then you can diversify and do all the other things that your heart desires, but ride the wave and let the market also tell you what you're best at and ride that all the way up. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Ben Glebe. How are you? I am good, buddy. How are you? I'm great. Glad to have you on. So I assume taking going back to you know the delivery room when you're born, you pop out, you start making fun of your mom, doing crowd work with the doctors. Like that's how it all started, right? Immediately you're in comedy and off to the races. Pretty much. Doctor tried to slap me and I was like, whoa, Will Smith, tone it down. And <laughs> exactly. had the delivery room in stitches. And from there it was an easy path. Uh, there you go. In stitches, no pun intended. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So to take me back, uh, where are you from originally? Where did it start? L.A., born and raised. You are from LA. There you go. One of the rare few. Same here. Brother. Yes. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so when you came into the world, like, what was childhood like? What were your parents like? Like, where did it all start? I had a great childhood, great loving family. We also fought a lot. We were kind of like in like a loud arguing family, but we were one of those families that would make up immediately after fights. Okay, so, yeah. Was it more of like the constructive arguing or was it like actually you were at each other? No, no, it was nothing constructive about it. It was swear words flying and a lot of not great skills with dealing with that kind of emotion and just letting it fly. But then we would apologize, say we love each other and be eating McDonald's Sundays half an hour later and everything was good again. So very loving, though, always together, family dinner every night together as a family, lots of family trips, driving road trips, different places, and uh, a lot of love, a lot of support, very, very loving parents, very incredibly supportive parents. And what kind of work did they do? Like, what did you see? What were you a witness to growing up? My dad was a real estate broker and property manager for his company that he was vice president of that my grandfather started called Gleberman Investment Corporation. That's my full last name, not my, not my stage name. They managed a bunch of properties, like seven buildings all over LA that the company also owned most of them or a lot of them. And so I would sometimes shadow my dad and go around to the buildings and see what he would do. But I would also work in the office, which is also ironically near where I live now in the Valley, their old office. And my grandfather would have me watch the stock ticker tape for him and tell him how his stocks were doing and give him updates and teach me how to reconcile the balance sheets with good handwriting and stand with good posture, none of which I followed. I have bad posture and I have messy writing, but he at least gave me an entrepreneurial mind, which is good. And then when my grandfather passed away, the business dissolved and my dad became a luggage salesman, retail salesman, luggage and electronics at Robinson's May, and then a place called Savinar Luggage. My mom growing up a lot of the time initially was back in Israel where she's from. She was a high school teacher and she was an actress, but then she became came here and for a while she was, for many years, she was a housewife and raised us. She was a stay-at-home mom, but she would also tutor students in for their bar mitzvahs and she would tutor rabbis and in Bible study and help them write their sermons, even though she's a totally non-religious person, she has a very brilliant, a great understanding of the Bible and of complex things. And so then she became a high school teacher again at an Orthodox Jewish high school, which was the job that fell into her lap that she had to abide by there. No showing your shoulders and no showing your ankle standards and but my mom would disregard that and hug all the students. And <laughs> I mean, she probably dressed appropriately, but she would hug all the students. I just ran into an ex-student of hers at one of my shows. And he said to me, your mom treated us like human beings. Like she related to us. She, we actually looked forward to talking to her. She'd give the best hugs in the world. And you felt like you actually mattered and weren't just a number to her. And so I grew up with that kind of humanism. My dad is someone who loved to make people laugh, loved to talk to strangers, loved to share stories, love just to make anyone laugh that he could. And 
regaled them with the stories of his life and how proud he was of his family. And so it instilled great family values in me and it instilled a real gregarious nature. My mom is more the sarcastic, sly, kind of quiet humor and very dry humor. My dad was like the showman with being very outlandish and goofy and doing voices and characters. And I think I ended up being a nice blend of the two. That's beautiful. And so growing up, were you thinking you'd get into the family business? Like when you were like the four-year-old, five-year-old, what was the, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would, you know, remember what you'd throw out there? It's been comedian and TV host since day one. Really? Since I was like, about what, what, five or six. Five. Amazing. Never, never thought I would go into the family business. Never, never thought I would do that. I knew that I would be an entertainer and acting became part of it later on. But originally it was, it was stand up and hosting. And where did that come from? Like, where do you think that, what was that rooted in? I think mostly my parents' nature overall, you know, I, I don't know why I led with the arguments, but we would sometimes get loud and it made me not afraid to, to speak up, but more so they were just very outgoing, loving, funny people. We would laugh a lot as a family. We would always watch comedy shows as a family. It was an event in our household when George Carlin would drop his yearly specials for HBO and we would watch them. And he became my complete hero as a comedian and my idol and who I kind of, if anybody, I patterned myself after. It's a little bit like George Carlin. And, you know, incredibly, I've become friends with his only child, Kelly Carlin, his daughter, who's become an amazing force in my life and just somebody I really cherish having in my life and just an amazing human herself. But I got to see him live right before he passed. He came to my college in Arizona like uh, a year before and got to see him in person. Guy is just brilliant. So complete nice brilliance. Yeah. And his last special, I think it was called It's Bad For You, like a year or so before he died, was his best in many years. He was That's just like Oh, it was incredible. Just so incredible. I highly recommend anybody listen to it or watch it that hasn't. And my parents just loved that kind of thing. And they made perhaps an error in parenting or for my career, the perfect decision. I had a normal bedtime like most kids, but I had a TV in my room and I never had to turn it off. There was no lights out time. So since I was six, seven, eight years old, I've been a night owl going to bed at 12, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., Never wanted to get up for school, but I'd be up late watching Saturday Night Live reruns and originals and Kids in the Hall and Letterman and Johnny Carson was a complete hero and, and a model that taught me how to host. And I just never had to. And, and you know, he, he just passed. So he's been top of mind. Pee Wee's Playhouse taught me how silly and inventive and creative you could be, you know, watching Pee Wee Herman do that. And then Pee Wee's Big Adventure and, and Chevy Chase and movies like Fletch and Vacation and I would just be up all night watching these things. And I never really cared much about Saturday morning cartoons, but I would love the comedies like Saved by the Bell and shows like the ones I just mentioned. And that just shaped how my brain worked. And I think developed a very adult, advanced sense of humor for a young kid pretty quickly. And with that, like, so what was the initial, like the first time you either thought or said, I want to be a comedian. Like, do you remember, like, what had you already been? Was it because you were watching stand up comedy with your family and you loved, like, where did that original? Because it sounds like once you had that motivation, then you were all in from the beginning. But what sparked that initial, like, I'm going to do this? I think just the feedback of making people laugh. I was very good at making my family laugh, like, at will, basically, and my friends laugh. And that was with a severe speech problem. I had a, very debilitating speech problem through much of my childhood where I couldn't even talk, where I would stutter and a disfluency or my vocal cords would close down, plus a little bit of a lisp that I still have a bit of today. And I would have to tell teachers to never call on me, but it would be the kind of seasonal, it would come and go and it would be based on my confidence for myself for some reason, which is why I now can help teach people how to overcome their fear of public speaking. And I do that as a talk or private coaching sometimes too. And because I've really figured out the psychology of it and I think I can help people through it. I mean, I know I can. And so despite that, in the gaps and the times when I was confident, I would just always make people laugh. I was, despite the speech problem in sixth, seventh and eighth grade, chosen class comedian in the superlatives and, and senior year of high school, I was the person most likely to host the daily talk show was the one I got. And so it was pretty spot on for what I wanted to do. It was just clear that my talents were not in academics. They were not in athletics. Certainly, I was the funny one on the football team, which is not what you want to do. I, I ended up with lifelong lower back problems because I was the funny one on the football team. And a couple of the 
tough guys did not take kindly to that attitude. So I just developed that skill and honed it. And I don't know exactly the first time that I thought I could do it, but I just knew in my head I could do it always. Like from a very young age, I used to have dreams of like performing in a sequin jacket on stage. I've since abandoned the sequins dream. I would say, I mean, you've got to have once rocked the sequins. Oh, I have definitely. I oh, own a sequin yeah. jacket, much like from that dream. I just don't bust it out a lot. It's more for Pride Month that I bust it out rather than for my comedy act. <laughs> you know, solidarity. And so what point did you like start honing a craft? Like start, like I know you were obviously telling jokes like you can do that day to day, but when did you start like really putting an effort into being like a pro at this? I mean, I really started writing early in high school. I had a box called Ben's Stand-Up Comedy Box, and it was alphabetized, and I would have jokes on bits. And then I started a radio show at the end of high school called The Glebe Show. And and even through my speech problem, I would have my friends come and co-host with me, and they would jump in, and I would hit a block. And then in college, I immediately started my own late-night talk show because I always wanted a Carson-esque, Letterman-esque talk show called that The Glebe Show. And and became a very big thing on campus. And I would do a handful of episodes a year, including a huge one at the end of the year that culminated in a huge event on our campus. Like the fourth annual live Glebe show was the official opening ceremonies of UC San Diego's Sun God Festival. There were 3,000 students in the crowd. Carmen Electra was my guest. The year before, the Marines brought me in on a tank down the middle of campus in front of a... You, you went all out with this. I went very, very all out. I had helicopters getting shots for me over my... Movie parodies. This is 96 to 2000. Okay. And so I would do a big movie parody for the show each year as well and make it a very, like a shot by shot, elaborate parody, but also remake of like American Beauty became American Booty. And the year that won Best Picture and the characters were all in college. And so the crane, the helicopter was flying over my campus, even though it was a no, even though it was a no fly zone closed airspace. I did it anyway. I just literally, I remember being on the phone telling the helicopter, my buddy that was in the helicopter with the pilot, he's like, we're not allowed to fly over. I'm like, just do it. Just fly over quickly. Get the shot and authorize. <laughs> As a pilot, I, I know that can get you into some serious trouble. <laughs> yes, it can. Yes, it can. But I, I greenlit it anyway. And I became the station manager of the TV station. So I also learned the inner workings of how to produce TV and what makes a show popular or not and how to get people motivated to produce. What and were you random. majoring in, by the way? Because you went to college. Communications, yeah. Okay. Communications major, theater minor, graduated okay. in the honors communications uh, thesis program and had my own class for the last two years of college called Glebe Show 198 where my friends could take classes for four units and, and they could work in my production because it was such a big production. But in that, I also had a personal trainer. I had a personal assistant. All they were getting units to like, it was like kind of Van Wilder-esque, but with less partying, I guess. And then I also had a weekly live call-in show throughout all of college. I did almost every week called the Whatever Live Show, where I really honed my improv chops. We would take live calls and just try to make them funny and engaging as possible. And that was a real feet to the fire kind of experiment. And so I graduated college from my third annual. I ended up with a manager that was Tom Green and Jimmy Kimmel and, uh, Adam Carolla's manager, Howard Lapidus, back in the day I graduated with him and Chip Butterman as my managers. I already had them on board for a year waiting for me to graduate. So I was able to hit the ground running a lot faster than a lot of people can. Came back home when I was 22 and I started dabbling a touch in stand-up like my last year of, of college, but then joined an improv troupe in L.A., called the LA Connection during summers during college, actually, then joined the Empty Stage Theater after I graduated. And I was in that troupe with Kristen Wiig and Felicia Day and these incredible improv geniuses and comedy geniuses. And But I would be in a lot of the improv scenes and they were so much fun, but I ended up like taking over the scenes a lot. And like, I just had too many comedic ideas and a certain vision, how I wanted it to go. Not that my cohorts didn't, and I'm not saying those other two people I just mentioned, they were incredible and we didn't get to do scenes too often together, but I would just sometimes like have my own instincts and, and that's not the best for a team improv. And so it was suggested to me by a couple of people, maybe stand up's the better avenue for you where it's just your words and your decisions and your calls. And, and so I shifted more into stand up while also acting training the whole time at some of the best acting schools in LA and, and stand-ups what really started to take off for me. And that led to hosting, which really took off for me as well. So hosting and and stand-up are the two things that I became most known for. And so where 
at what point in lovemaking also i don't want to shortchange my lovemaking yeah. skills i'm, I'm very well known for in that terms of like if you're tearing it where does that sit i mean it's its own echelon really it's way <laughs> way below but in my mind it's medium in medium okay medium echelon medium echelon Got it. and in the other two stand up I guess way above. I mean, I'm definitely more naturally talented of those two, at least if you ask my first encounters and my very late blooming nature, it was definitely the uh, other two that came a little more natural and which led to the lovemaking too. I I sadly, I don't know that I have much game in this world. If somebody hasn't seen me perform first, if someone's coming in cold, work with what you got, work with what you got. You know, I'm not the world's most good looking guy. I'm not the world's most, in shape, even though I'm working on both of those, my face is being reshapen daily and I'm losing weight at a rapid rate, but you go with what you got and it That's seemed to it, jacket. Correct. Yeah, correct. There are dudes jumping all over me. <laughs> so when was the point that I mean was it getting management out of school? Like it sounds like even in college you felt like you were crushing it in college doing this stuff. So like at what point did, did you go like, oh this is coming true. Like I'm gonna make a career out of this. Because I know like in comedy like it's hard. It's one of the hardest vocations out there. You're getting judged by a giant room of people several times a night. A lot of the time you're, even if you, you know, the, the greats get booed off the stage. Like, it's like, it's crazy how hard it is. And there's no point where you're like, you get to kind of rest on your oils, never existed, but never exists. But at what point were you like, Oh wait, I'm not like the dreams I've had since a little kid. Like I'm going to make this work. Like I can make a living doing this. Like when did that hit? It was a specific moment. I remember it clearly. It was, the end of my freshman year of college at UCSD. And when I did the first annual live Glebe show, it was just in my little college first at Muir College outdoors. And I had run 100 foot audio video cables down the sides of the residence halls from the TV station into our cameras. And this elaborate production, I spent weeks not sleeping, organizing and writing and trying to book amazing guests and making it this very unique show that my parents drove up for and my grandma drove up, drove up for. And it started to rain before the show began, it started to like drizzle. And we had like thousands of dollars of equipment outside and not covered. And if it was going to rain any little bit more, they were going to have to call out the show. So I did a very rare prayer. I went in the corner and I prayed that it would stop raining and it did stop raining. And the show went off without a hitch. And it was just so it executed exactly as I saw it in my brain. The crowd was just kind of in the palm of my hand for the whole hour and a half laughing where I wanted them to laugh. Every bit was received as I hoped. And I remember walking down the residence hall after that show, after we'd wrapped up all the equipment and everybody left. And I said to myself, I could make a career out of this. I can do it. And then from there, I mean, how consistent has it been in terms of, I'm sure you've had moments of weeks, months where it feels like, uh Oh, this is a little shaky. Like I think every entrepreneur, everyone in their career has that, but like, from an annual basis, has it been pretty consistent that you're like, I can, like, this is still working? Or have you had points where it felt like you might have to make a switch or get out of this? I just, I, I mean, I, you know, as we've all seen, we've had friends in the entertainment world that all of a sudden are the real estate agents and things like that. Uh-huh. Has that ever knocked on your door? Yeah. Thankfully, it has not. Not in any significant way. Like you said, definitely like little moments and insecurities. And if you asked my psyche, I would say often, I feel like it's not going how I want it to. And when you see, you know, when I see all of my cohorts that I literally came up with, like my comedy class that, I mean, granted, I'm in very fortunately, probably in the top 5% of the people I came up with as far as success, I would I would guess, and the things I've been fortunate enough to be able to do. But this business really only pays the real money and the real following for the top like 2%. And so I'm still not quite, and I'm seeing my friends literally headlining arenas night after night and making probably $50 million a year just in stand-up, 30 to 50 million, and starring and creating their own Netflix scripted shows and being on the cover of Variety and having multiple, multiple Netflix specials and millions and millions of fans that I haven't yet reached. And you question whether you're going to get there a little bit. So I would say it's almost more lately a little bit in the last five years because I've always known that I could make it in this business, but whether I'm going to be able to make it to the very, very top, speaking of echelons, am I going to be able to make it to that superstardom level where I really get to entertain and 
bring laughter and joy to the masses, to millions of people consistently on my own terms and my own platform and be able to hopefully reap the financial rewards of that as well is still a question mark to some degree. I don't like to acknowledge that it's a question mark, but you asked the question. And so I think that is something that I still, I'm too hard on myself sometimes because then a comedian that doesn't have the things that I do or haven't been able to achieve the things I have say to me, like, are you kidding how many people would trade places with you in a, in a, in a moment? And I think to some degree, you probably need that bit of self-doubt to keep your engine going, to keep yourself motivated. Otherwise you would just rest on your laurels. And I'm like, wow, I got a big pool and I got a great view out of the back of my house. So why do I want to keep working? I've got what I need. It's just, I guess, something in me that wants to climb to the very top. You know, like I said, I'm not much of an athlete, so I'm not going to climb to the very top of Everest, but I'm going to climb hopefully the very top of the Everest of the comedy world and of the entertainment business. And so, but generally on an annual basis, I've been very lucky with rare exception. Maybe there's two or three years of the last 20 that like maybe my income dropped significantly or I didn't know exactly where my next job would come from. And one of those was pretty recently. I mean, there was pandemics and businesses shut down. That's when I actually reinvented and pivoted and turned it into a great positive. But with every pivot comes what you leave behind. And, you know, I just, when the pandemic hit, I lost my stand-up my stand-up touring agent at WME during the pandemic. And so I, instead of trying, I cobbled together my own tour that next year and then didn't want to keep doing that. And I thought I'm just going to double down on digital and auditions and stuff here in LA and developing my material here. And for the first time in 15 years of a, being a road traveling, headlining, touring comedian, I've just been performing in LA and doing digital stuff with my Nowhere Comedy brand I created and around town. And in that time, it's been really wonderful. And I just trusted that that leap would not be a detriment. And I just, you know, I recorded my second hour special and released it. And it was to great critical fanfare. In fact, Kelly Carlin actually compared it to George Carlin on her serious radio show and tweeted on the official George Carlin Twitter that people need to check out my special, The Mad King, because it reminds her of her dad's approach to comedy, which literally put tears in my eyes and was enough to motivate me for another year. And then I just debuted my new hour called Endings about this very crazy personal year I've had with a lot of endings in it and trying to craft that into what I think will be my third hour special that I'll hopefully tape in the next few months. But generally income wise, every year I find a way to, the graph definitely goes up. There are a couple dips, but it goes up every year, to, except to be fair, when I had my own game show on Game Show Network that then went to that, Netflix, yeah. Idiot Test, and I was the star of, of a TV network that income year was the pinnacle and I'm trying to get back to that and above. But if you take out the outlier, like last two seasons of that show, it's definitely an upward trend. But once you get that TV money, you definitely want to get back there. Yeah, no. And so to start, like I got to imagine getting off the road. I remember watching some clip with Tom Segura and uh, Bert Kreischer about like they're joking about how miserable it is on the road and they're like laughing and then they both just start crying and like i gotta imagine getting off the road and being able to do what you do but not be all on an airplane every single day in a new city where you're waking up and like where the fuck am i like i gotta imagine that's nice for this idea at least a little bit this many years into it very much it's been really grounding it's been really wonderful and especially i lost my father just three and a half months ago i guess approaching four months ago now and I was home a lot more than I normally would be and got to have weekly dinners with my parents practically weekly for the last couple of years, which was amazing. And that was amazing, but it's good for the psyche, but it's also a little tough on the psyche because I knew that I was taking a gamble. And, and I think my standup profile has probably taken a hit while I've built up in other areas. You know, now I've become like one of the lead anchors of the young Turks and I get to bring my comedic spin to their shows and to my own video series. I do for them under their rebel headquarters banner and and my social media is doing well but and some videos go viral and you get in the millions of views and you feel great but the average of them don't do that and i'm seeing exactly the guys you mentioned for example bert kreischer and tom segura like they've been buddies for a long time tom and christina and i did some like horrible little web series like as as guests on some not horrible but like just like the most low budget tiny thing many many moons ago we were on there with some porn star and with some random guy selling, I don't know what vitamins he was like, you know what I mean? And then Tom's at the top of the game and Bert and I literally run a tour 
in probably the year was like 2004, 2005, called Virtual Comedy Heroes with me, him, and Eddie Ift. And we played like three cities all over Georgia. And one night we had to play the Athens Theater. They had booked for us. It was 600 seats. And we showed up two hours before the show and there were six tickets sold. And so Bert and I and Eddie went to local Kinko's at the time and printed a bunch of flyers and were hawking for our own shows while we were the virtual comedy heroes and were just begging people to come in. And we were able to get it to like 60 people in those two hours. And we still had a very empty theater, but at least it wasn't horrifically empty. And we were able to do a great show as long as, and you know, as long as the shows are good, you still feel good about what you do. You just don't maybe feel good about the way you're resonating deeply into the, psyche of of a very overly saturated entertainment market especially these days but then you know it just definitely gives you motivation and also a little bit of a like what am i doing wrong to then see bert headlining arenas and the cover of variety and and i just ran into him and he was so sweet and kind and said he might have me come do some like nascar dates with him or something and that would be amazing but you just wonder what you need to do to get to that level. It's very motivating and it also is very concerning. And I don't sleep a lot. <laughs> no, I do. I sleep just fine. I sleep just fine. The good news is we live in a world where there's always someone bigger. Like I'm sure Bert's saying the same thing about, you know, the greats, so to speak, and maybe he'll end up there. But like, you know, it's there's there's always someone doing something bigger and better than you. Elon Musk is looking at Mark Zuckerberg in terms of like at the pinnacle of their careers where they now and are he wants to kick his ass in a cage right. match and then make up stuff about, but after, after my surgery, yes, yes. Yeah, that's exactly. when I'll do it is after I, uh, after I build muscles and have them uh, put surgically into my body. Mm, yes. I got a hand to Mark Zuckerberg. He posted a picture and he's like shredded now. So it's like, you really like, he actually looks Damn. like he's been training for a while. <laughs> like, Damn. Uh-oh. Okay. Yeah. I know he's been doing jujitsu and stuff. Yeah, And then Bert, to your exact point, during the pandemic, I was asked to be part of Laugh-Aid, which Comedy Gives Back did. It's an organization that supports comedians who are in need, either psychologically or financially. And they put together like some of the biggest stars in comedy. And I was so honored to be asked to be on it. And Bert was on it. He hosted one of the hours with Whitney Cummings. And they had Adam Sandler on. And Bert was just losing his shit with Adam Sandler and he like looked like a child. Like I was like, Bert, why are you not also being funny here? And like looking like you belong. He was like, Oh my God, I can't believe it. Another thing you don't understand. Like your movie. And I do it. And it was like, Bert, take a breath, you know? So <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how it works. So to rewind a little ways, you start doing stand up and hosting. Like it sounds like just post the improv side. You just decide to focus on that. What was your first hosting gig? Gosh, I guess first hosting was probably on the internet. I hosted like some web series briefly called Is It Manly? I hosted things for MySpace, hired me in their last efforts to become relevant again when they tried a rebranding maybe like 15 or so years ago. Well, my first hosting thing was I pitched myself to be the news bureau chief of National Lampoon Network, which was a college TV network aired to colleges around the country. And I was the news bureau chief and I would do like these little one-off reports. And after a few months, Randy Siegel was very instrumental in getting me in there. She was a Fallon's old manager and a great executive. She was VP of National Lampoon at the time, brought me into the president, Dan Lakin's office and said, this guy needs his own show. I had my late night talk show pitch ready to go, pitched it, sold it. And for three seasons, hosted the Glebe show on National Lampoon, which I had done in college. Then I started doing, but then I guess my first like, professional well i guess and then by hosting what i really mean is hosting or course or like panel stuff so being on air kind of riffing and and as an on-air personality so then i was hired yeah i was gonna say when did that really start to kick off so i had done a few things here and there i can't remember at the moment even what my first one really was like game show network had me guest host on their Saturday morning game show hours blocks. You'd play games live with the audience as they watched other shows during the commercial bumpers. I forget what it was even called. It was called GSN Live. And then it was many years before I worked with them again, but they kept their eyes on me, thank God. And then I did some things on CNN and during the 2012 presidential election. And But I guess in 20... Real quick on the CNN thing, what did they call you in now? But anyway, like we're talking about the election. We're here with comedian Ben Glebe. Yeah, I would go on with like Don Lemon mostly. And, and I yeah. would do a comedic, they call called the lighter side of politics. And I would do a comedic spin on politics on the presidential campaigns. And again. yeah, <laughs> absolutely. They could. I got to bring Don Lemon back first. Yeah, touche. <laughs> but 
I then auditioned for this show for NBC called The Real Wedding Crashers in 2007. Well, 2006, I sold my own show to Fox with Lorne Michaels as the producer and production company, Broadway Video, called The Glebe Show again. It was going to be the show at Lampoon evolved from a talk show to like a, a single camera sitcom that wrapped around all the different segments like Hidden Camera and Man on the Street and Sketches in a very innovative format. Lorne's company loved it. We sold it to Fox with them. I'm still on Lord Michael's IMDb, which is amazing. So I'm pretty certain he does not know who I am. And <laughs> what did Lord Michael's and uh, National Lampoon have like a big like dispute and like conflict? Did they? Oh yeah, because I think Lord used to own Burley Bear Network that became National Lampoon Network, and there was some sort of some. And I thought like because he was like because SNL wasn't Lampoon, and I thought he was like poaching a bunch of people from Lampoon to SNL. There was, was that for sure. I yes. I'm not in the industry. I don't know as much, but it's, I think I heard that. There was some of that. Yeah. And, and a lot of the Harvard Lampoon guys, which were tangentially related to the National Lampoon, then came. It was Chevy Chase and Aykroyd, I believe, and all a lot of those guys that yeah. went over there. So, yeah, there was something there. I don't think he really knew about the connection with me there, hopefully. Yeah. But that show went away. The comedy department that bought it at Fox was fired by the time our, our deal closed and our script was finished. So we got paid to write it, but never got to make it, even though we were supposed to. And then... Which you know, just a through, lot, right? Just for people, a to lot, a lot, all the time. You'll have your dream come true. That's why I'm trying to make moves in recent years to take the power back myself and give myself opportunities and create my own platforms where it can't ever be taken away from me. Because I'm just, you know, two decades deep, pretty sick of like getting your big break and then the big break. If in a huge success lasts two or three years, and then more often gets on the air for a minute or or gets a pilot and never gets picked up. And then it's just short-term work and you kind of start from scratch. You're known a little bit more in the business. So then I started hosting my own show and producing my own show at the Laugh Factory, Glebe's College Comedy, that then became Comedy Juice. I created my own brand of live comedy events I took to the improv, which effectively got me banned from the Laugh Factory for like 10 years. But you got to do what you got to do. Pissed. You went to the improv and said, "They're pissed." Here. Yeah, but they were offering me real money as opposed to no money. Basically, I was getting paid like beans there at the factory, and it's gotten better now. They pay great, and I would I love to keep playing there. And please don't be listening to this podcast. <laughs> but you know, you're always in comedy. It's the most humbling business because you're always, no matter how successful you become, you still are beholden to all of the comedy club gatekeepers and the bookers and the owners and needing to do every gig. Like I'll come off of an NBC shoot that I'm doing for two months and starve an NBC show and then happily go play for $60 a gig in Pacoima where I get to practice 40 minutes of stand-up instead of 15 minutes in town. And so I started doing that show. I ended up selling that brand years later after building it up for 15 years. I sold Comedy Juice, but I was hosting my own show that became the hottest show in town. And so that led to my stand-up debut on TV because the booker of the Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn at the time, which before... Ferguson and Corden came along, would put his comics on my show before their appearances every week to run their five minutes, and he would see me killing it. So then he offered me to appear on the Late Late Show one time, so I got to do that. And then I'm just doing my show at the Improv, and all these people are seeing it, and Chelsea Handler I'd booked a couple of times on my show and got to know her a little tiny bit, and she liked my voice. And liked my vibe and, and brought me in when she got Chelsea lately to audition to be the announcer of the show. Didn't get that gig, but I was like, I'd love to come do this roundtable you guys are apparently going to be doing. And they're like, yeah, we'd love to. Manager at the time stupidly waited seven months before calling them to get me in on the very ground floor. But eventually I reminded him and he called. And I became a regular on Chelsea lately for the next seven years and did over 100 episodes. And that's the show that really gave me a name in this business, made me a known entity made me recognizable out in the streets. And I owe so much of that to the booker, Michael Cox, who's now the booker of the tonight show and to Chelsea Handler for believing in me that whole time. And so when Chelsea and lately, ended up, I mean, you, you get, you get in the door through some favors maybe, but you get invited back 100 times. I think you probably did something right. <laughs> that is true. That is definitely true. Plus, you know, a lot of sexual favors and I won't say who I gave them to and who gave them to me or if that even happened that didn't happen i'd like to clarify the record these days say something like that all of a sudden there's a headline yes this this whole podcast is off the record right yeah yeah yeah, totally yeah i appreciate that deep background and then just to complete the picture briefly the nbc thing i mentioned 2006 it was called the real wedding crashers i auditioned for this thing it's just like a hidden camera actor got cast as one of the leads in this five-person cast of this ashton kutcher jason goldberg produced the guys that made punked 
primetime NBC hidden camera show. We'd crash real life weddings with the bride and groom in on it with us. Million dollar budgets each episode, insane high pressure environment. Did that show. It's going to be the big break. It was going to air in primetime after Heroes on NBC. And then it failed very quickly. And the rest of the cast that has all gone on to amazing things. The, the five of us have all developed incredible careers. I'm the only one that believed the show was going to be a big hit. And they were all like, and I heard a publicist. They're like, Ben, don't waste your money. The show's not very good. But it was Catherine Reitman who ended up creating and starring in and writing, I think, directing a lot of Working Moms on Netflix, the huge hit, one of the biggest shows in the world. Desi Lydic, who's now one of the star correspondents on The Daily Show. Gareth Reynolds of The Dollop Podcast. And Steve Byrne, who's become one of the biggest comics in the world and had his own sitcom for years. And so the five of us did pretty good. But then Chelsea lately for seven years. And right when Chelsea announced that show was going off the air, there was like a run up of like the last year we knew it was coming to a close. Game Show Network called me back in and offered me my own game show. And I shot the whole first season before Chelsea Lately ended. And so literally two weeks to the day after the final episode of Chelsea Lately, my game show premiered. And so I was, or maybe it might have even been two weeks before. I can't remember. But basically, I was never off the air, very luckily. And I told Game Show Network, take ads out on the finale weeks of Chelsea Lately, because that's where my fans are. They're going to come over. Yeah. And they did That's do awesome. that. And so, how and how long did the Game Show Network stuff last? I did it for four seasons, two hundred and ten episodes. I was the host, head writer, became co-executive producer. You were and, literally do, that's more than an episode a week, isn't it? Yeah. Well, mm, for four years, fifty-two. It weeks. was four years, so it was two hundred and whatever twenty weeks. But they basically, yeah, had an episode a week for for four years. And we would block shoot those puppies. I would shoot five episodes a day. Smart, yeah. So that was pretty wild, but I got a lot of energy, so I was happy to do it. And I was still free the rest of my year to do, audition for other things and pursue other things. And then you get your own frustrations with the business side of it too, because you know, since this is more, you know, about the struggle and the and the just to speak honestly, like I should have been more focused on having another show ready to go during that time because I was able to do any other show in first position during idiot test, but also my team at the time really dropped the ball and did not set me up on anything right after. So that's when that first like real scary moment happened. What I was at this pinnacle point, I was the star of a network. I was the face of their Christmas commercial campaigns. It was a holiday filled with glee. I'm on the side of buildings and the show gets canceled because the network changes directions completely. And all of a sudden I'm not on TV for a few years and I had to scramble and figure some things out. What year was that? When did that end? It ended 2018. It stopped airing. And so what did you do like pre-COVID? So 18, 19, beginning of 20, what were you working on? Was it back to stand-up? Like, what was your focus during that period? Back to stand-up, touring, auditioning. And then I don't know if you even know about this big turn, but my life took a quite significant turn in 2019. And if you don't know about it, it proves the exact point of how broken our media and our politics are, but I am very into politics. And I'd also been on NPR along this time for seven years and really knew my politics. And I was on CNN, like I said, in my podcast that I started, that was on Kevin Smith's network, was a very, very popular podcast. I haven't done it recently consistently, so it's dropped off a bit, but, and it talked about news and politics. And so, and I was seeing Donald Trump as a huge existential threat to our country. I may still see it that way. And he was running for re-election in 2019 for the 2020 election. And I was watching the early debates and I didn't think that traditional politicians were going to beat him. And I thought you can't beat a heckler like him with polite politics. You need a comedian to beat a heckler. And so I threw my hat in the ring and ran for president of the United States. I actually did and not know that. You did not. Yeah. I mean, it was a very, here you can see, here's the propaganda poster, one of our propaganda posters from the campaign right there. Sometimes you got to take their toys away. This is the cover of the Nashua Telegraph in New Hampshire. Comedian Ben Glebe campaigns for presidency. We were out there for seven months on the campaign trail, speaking along, uh, speaking at events with everyone, with Biden and, and Warren and Buttigieg and Sanders and every major candidate and, and um, Actually, Larry King. At lunch with Andrew Yang today, he was on the podcast. Really? Yeah. Really? Amazing. That's yeah, cool. He was so cool to me during the campaign and did videos. He's like, he's like, Glebe gang, it's the Yang gang here. And he was very cool. And um, 
Larry King interviewed me, and we really made some inroads considering the media wanted to give us, as did the DNC, wanted to give us literally zero attention because we weren't already a billionaire, which money speaks in this world like crazy, and we weren't from inside the political system. And if you're not one of those two, they just do not want to risk having outside voices on. And so there were moments of, of little things, you know, the Washington Post did a video for their website. And now this did a video on my campaign. And like I said, Larry King, but overall, we couldn't get in the New York Times. We couldn't get in the LA Times. We couldn't get on CNN where I used to be. And I would message Don Lemon. He's like, I don't think this is going to work. Our producers say for our show. It's like, what do you mean? A candidate in the race for the existential crisis of our nation? And I'm presenting another option. It's not worth five minutes. You'd rather for 24 hours a day have your experts go on and just bloviate on and on, show 10 seconds of the actual news clip and the rest of them just pontificating about what it means. But you can't actually share the news of another candidate in the race. Silly. And Joe Rogan, even, I was very disappointed by, and I speak pretty openly about this because he and I got into a big argument about it because I asked him to have me on, and he just was not cool about it and said no, but in an aggressive way as well, and then would like kind of like make jokes about my campaign on his show, which ironically was great exposure. But, you know, even though he was not saying necessarily positive things, and then six months later after my campaign ends, he's on his podcast saying, you know what we need? To be Trump is a comedian. That's what we need. Like he thought of the idea when literally it was my premise that I brought to him. And then, of course, the war in Ukraine broke out. And anybody who didn't think a comedian could be taken seriously as president all of a sudden sees Zelensky, who's the hero of the world and considered the best leader ever, who was who was just before he became president, the most famous comedian in the country and a very silly improv guy and touring the country doing silly, playing the piano with his penis, you know. There you go. There's still rounds to be had, though. You know, every four years, you can, you can go for it yeah. again if you want. <laughs> I'm pretty out of that. I'm, I've decided that it is not for me. Never say never. Perhaps when I'm a thousand years old and I'm in the prime age for politics, then maybe. But until <laughs> so, that time, I'm good. All right. So you, you did the campaign trail thing until, you know, up until the beginning of COVID. You made some pivots. I remember you hosted an event with us. And now you've got your digital side. So like, bring me up to speed now. Like, where is the career at? What's going on right now for you? You, you mentioned a little bit. But. Yeah. So then the pandemic hits. And as much as it was difficult for everybody to have two years of not normal life, not normal career, it was extra crazy for me because it was three years because I was on the campaign trail for most of the year before. And that was one of the very low financial places. I was near broke. I didn't, I mean, I owned my home, so I was okay. But I was very cash flow poor and didn't know where my next income was really going to come from because I was off the road and the road was closed and clubs were closed everywhere. And so I just closed my eyes for a second and out of, you know, as they say, desperation is the mother of invention. I just thought, how there's got to be a way to tour without touring, without leaving the house. And I realized, well, yeah, this is how you do it. It's just if you could just let people on a video conferencing platform have their mics and cameras on. Unlike the first people that were doing it, which were so afraid of noise that would mess up shows to making them mute themselves. And it wasn't at all like stand up. If you could make it very close to stand up and manage the audio so that the audio levels would be comparable to a performer and an audience, the dynamic of the microphone being louder and bring their audio levels down and have live showroom managers that would manage it and bouncers that would mute people and kick people out and provide customer service and ticket sales. And we all of a sudden could tour without leaving our homes. And I created Nowhere Comedy. I brought the idea to Steve Hofstetter, who was my co-founder at the time, and we built this business. And before you know it, we were at multiple New York Times profiles and Forbes and Fast Company talking about us and and we were called by, by the Interrobank, which is this comedy insider newsletter that's very respected, called the number three innovator that changed comedy in 2020. And we had millions of dollars in revenue through the door and 700 shows from up-and-comers to Bill Burr and Sarah Silverman and Sklar Brothers and Berbiglia did 28 shows with us. And we built a studio in my home that was COVID-compliant. Burr and Sarah would come and perform here in my house and do these big shows and and it was an avenue for me to be able to do shows. And I created this very dedicated online following and found my most hardcore fans I've ever had. So it's been a smaller number of people than I would 
perform to typically, but they're the most dedicated following. And I created this show called Glebe Off the Top, which is this weird virtual show I do monthly. And they call me the mad king of this town called Mad Town, where the show takes place, this like virtual fictional town. And all of my followers are called the mad ones. And they're the most dedicated, amazing people. And I had a Patreon start to pick pick up from that. And they would get tickets to all my virtual shows. And I would do another online originally six days a week during the pandemic. Now we just do it monthly with Jody Sweeten and Chris Bowers and Rachel Gallagher. And I do this online talk show and I headline my stand-up virtually as well as developing it in town. And the Mad Ones and the Mad King stuff led to my, I got an offer to do my second hour special from Helium Comedy Studios. And I went to Philly. People were still wearing masks in the crowd, but it was pretty much post the thick of it and recorded it and released that and then auditioned virtually via zoom via tape and then via zoom for a disney show called just beyond and was cast in my biggest acting role ever to be a ghost in the series called just beyond and i went and shot that in atlanta during covid and with intense covid protocols wearing masks with a lot of face makeup which was very frustrating because they would have to retouch our makeup constantly they eventually let the cast not wear masks much which was a much better decision because we're better than everybody else we're actors that's how it works right you get that and then just doing more stand-up and building stuff up again and trying to kind of find that next thing that's going to be my big next foray. And I've got a big plan for it. Part of it is finding somebody to run Nowhere Comedy for me, which I'm going to be, which we are already transitioning into Nowhere Studios. I realized during the strike, all of these studios that are being lambasted for being so greedy and not respecting talent at all and the writers and the actors that make their content well, I can start a smaller version of that with, you know, very talent-centered deals and talent-focused things that truly appreciate the artistry of who creates the art. And we're going to be doing all kinds of shows and trying to find a team that kind of take a lot of that off my shoulders because I have a very big show that's going to kind of bring my life and career full circle. I don't want to talk about it right now, but it's an innovative thing that kind of spins on an old format and reinvents it for the social media age. And I'm going to be at the helm of it, hosting this show and writing it. And hopefully it's a show that I think could pop off and we're going to be actually funding it soon and taking on investors and trying to go really big in a thing that we control and that we're going to give some amount of ownership in it to the audience, I think as well. And we're going to try to basically take on some of these network shows in a very homegrown way in a way that we control. And it's a job I'd love to keep for the next 30 years and be able to just supplement it with touring. And so that's kind of the plan right now. But when the big auditions come along, when the strike eventually hopefully ends and we get a fair deal, I'll probably still be doing some of those auditions too, you know? Yeah. And so last question for you, you know, you've been able since, as you said, five, six years old, you had a vision and you were able to execute. You've been able to spend all these years. You know, what would that be? How old are you now? Early 40s? Thank you so much. I'm 27. I am 45 years old. Just turned 45 last month. There you go. So, you know, you've spent the past 40 years, you know, really pursuing this and making it work. What would be your advice to someone that has their dream that wants to either, advice you either wish you got or you did get that helped you get through the tough times that helped you keep going? Like what, what would be one thing you would advise someone else trying to go for it? A couple fold would be the advice. Firstly, I would say, do not pursue this. I would say you really don't want to do it. It's a mistake. It's not as easy as you think. You are most likely going to fail. It'll be a lifelong slog of turning what you love into work, which makes it a grind, which takes away the ability to, for it to be the passion you want it to be. And it's better if you just keep it as a hobby or something you enjoy watching and do not do it. And now that that I've hopefully weeded out most of the people that want to do it for vanity reasons or don't really truly want to do it, if you still want to do it in the face of that, just know that it is a long journey. When I met Jim Carrey when I was in college and knowing I wanted to pursue all this already, and I said to him, I'm an aspiring comedian and actor. I wonder if you have any advice for me. And he goes, best of luck to you. Expect it to take 20 years. And at the time, I thought that was kind of dickish advice. And then, you know, now 20 four years, 23 years into doing it professionally, he's very right. And so stick with it. And the best, most tangible advice also 
that I still need help following that I hopefully will this, with this new project will be following. And if anybody wants in on it, by the way, DMs are open is whatever's working best for you. Focus on it. Craig Robinson gave me that advice years and years ago. And I still don't really follow it. And it's to my detriment. Whatever, Don't try to do it all now. Whatever you're getting traction with, focus on that. Ride that wave, climb to the top, then you can diversify and do all the other things that your heart desires. But ride the wave and let the market also tell you what you're best at and ride that all the way up. Great advice. Love it, Ben. Well, thank you so much for coming on Talk Talk. It's been awesome. It's my pleasure. And if I could just also say one other thing if anybody else wants direct advice, I've also started this kind of side hustle, I guess, recently where I am coaching people, not just in their public speaking. I'm helping people rewrite and shape the humor and the impact of their TED Talks, their lectures, their business pitches, their wedding speeches. I'm doing all of that stuff. So if anybody wants help with that, I'm doing some kind of consulting and writing on the side for that kind of thing too. And it's just at Ben Glebe on Instagram is like text to me. So you can hit me anytime. Perfect. And I got to imagine that's helpful if anyone's trying to deliver a message, have a comedian that lives or dies by the delivery. So it's been insane. I didn't expect to even do this, but all of a sudden the the money pouring in has been really good. So I'm making some time for it. And Craig's advice, you're doing this, that you're sticking to what's working. That is true. I'm getting slightly smarter in my mid age, middle age to young, very young. But so far I've only had three clients doing this. One, we're still shaping the speech. The first two clients, both standing ovation. So just saying. There you go. Perfect. Well, I'm very young though, right? You can acknowledge I'm very young. 27. Yeah. I'm, I'm on 27. A lot of people say I'm going backwards, kind of a Benjamin Button vibe. I look better every time I see, they see me. The face work, the body work you're doing. Like a lot of massages, a lot of injections, a lot of whatever, whatever's out there that I disagree with morally, I do it physically. Perfect. Do what you say, not what you do, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Eric. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.